Hello, everyone, and welcome to Broke Bitch Anonymous. It is currently 11.11 p.m. on a Sunday night, so I just want everyone to pause for a minute and join me in making a short wish because it's still 11.11. All right, I did it. Um, Okay, let's get things started. On to the big news. I am currently sitting here drinking my third White Claw And I also have with me a bottle of Patron, Silver Patron, that the guy who unfollowed me semi-recently, about a week ago now, um, the man who I spoke about in the beginning of the second episode, it is the bottle of Patron that he left here. And I actually texted him, and I sent a picture of the Patron that he left, and I said, hey, I still have your Patron, if you want to hang out again, whatever, I don't know what the fuck I said, something sad, something probably desperate sounding, and he did not reply, so that, to me, is a green light to drink his Patron, which I have been doing all weekend, so I brought it here just in case we need reinforcements, because I am guessing we probably will... Once again, I've written a bunch of notes for this episode that I have not reviewed or gone over that are just scribbles from my mind in the attempt of capturing or conveying some greater important message, which, you know, might be besides the point of all of this. I think hopefully the bigger point is to just unite in our collective brokenness or former brokenness if there is a bigger message I think it can only be captured in the moment and maybe not scribble down in iPhone notes, but hey, fuck it. At least we have a little bit of a roadmap. At least we have a bit of a roadmap for those of us who do not map neatly onto any sort of other life plan or coordinates in society. Anyway, if I sound um, slightly happier or more joyous than I did in the first two episodes, it's for two reasons. Number one, I'm very, very, very happy and relieved about the turnout of the last two episodes. One, because actually more people listened than I was expecting. Actually, enough people listened to unlock like sponsorship deals on the podcast hosting platform that I've been using. So I set up my little bank account and whatever, and we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm really not doing this to make money, but the fact that enough people listened to the first episode that it unlocked that feature was amazing, and I really was not expecting that at all. And number two, and this, I think, is the perfect way to kick off this episode, today is a Sunday, and I really wanted to get my hair done. I really wanted to get some highlights in my hair. I actually DM'd a couple of hairdressers that I know that have cut my hair before, or whatever, asking them if they were available, asking them if I could either come to their salon or if they did house calls, I could pay extra, whatever. The point is, I wanted to get my hair done today because I didn't have anything else scheduled for today other than a sauna. Wow, I really sound like a lady of leisure. But I did not have anything else scheduled for today other than going to the sauna. I wanted to get my highlights done and I was willing to spend money. After DMing a handful of hairdressers and I kid you not, looking up every salon near me and finding every single fucking salon to be closed. I don't know what this is. is I thought only things in Europe were closed on Sundays. Apparently, I'm wrong about that. Everything is fucking closed here. But I could not find a single person to do my hair. And I was willing to spend... I mean, normally when you get a full head of highlights, we're talking $300, $400 minimum. So I was ready to pay. No one could do my hair. So you know what I did... 
the same thing that I've been doing on and off for, let's be honest, the last five years. I went to fucking Publix. I bought a box of hair dye. I went to Sally's. I bought some toner and I did my own hair. I spent a total of about $25 on the hair dye, the toner, the developer, and the little brush thing that you need to, you know, whatever, put it on your, your head. And let me tell you, it actually, I think, looks really good. I think over the years, I have by accident gotten really good at dyeing my own hair. And there's something about wanting to spend money and being told by others that you're not allowed to spend it or that you can't spend it or that they won't service you so that you'll be able to spend it. That's very frustrating. And at this point, maybe my hairdressing ego is too inflated, but I almost want to quit salons and just commit to doing my own hair for eternity. Because first of all, I'm going to save a lot of money. We're talking three to $400 every three months. I don't know, add that up over a lifetime. It's probably a lot. And number two, it's just a fuck you to everybody who refuses to do my hair when I ask them to do my hair. Why is it so hard to find a hairdresser? But I don't know, maybe that'll change once I become a millionaire. Sometimes I wonder if this like inherent frugalness is something that will make me richer in the long term because I will, you know, be saving money out of out of just some misguided intention that I can't even really pinpoint, or if it's just a result of this sort of permanent poverty mindset that's been ingrained in me ever since I became my mother's child in 1992. And that poverty mindset will make me forever unable to attract money and make me broke for life. I don't know which one it is. I don't know which direction we're going to go here with the hairdressing, but the point is my hair looks very good right now so I feel good about myself. I styled it. I put my extensions in and so I'm sitting alone in my closet in a old ratty t-shirt, uh, no pants with my hair fully done for no one to see me. So at least I feel good even if no one cares. You know, maybe eventually we'll get to a point where we can do video. But to be honest with you, I think that there is something freeing might sound too generous, but there is something nice about the anonymity of just a voice speaking. Like, I don't really want this to be something that's really tied to one specific visual. I don't really want this to be a podcast that's tied to the visual of my face. I want this to feel like someone who you maybe don't know at all or kind of know or feel like you know or I want this to be something that feels like I can speak freely and like the people that I have on can speak freely and I think part of that means not caring how you look and not caring really what you look like to other people and plus there's the fact that the best audio in my house is filmed from the closet and there's really no need for people to see me sitting in a closet drinking tequila out of a mug. Even though, arguably, I am still in a better place currently than I was when I was living the subject matter for this episode, sitting here in my own nice apartment with my nice bottle of Patron, even if it was left by someone who rejected me, in the comfort of my home is still better than the situation that I was in last summer 
in the middle really of the pandemic or that kind of beginning middle, what we thought was the middle before it dragged on for another year and a few months. When I had been living in Toronto and decided to go back to New York with very little money because I always came to New York with very little money and just sort of forced myself and hoped that I would figure it out. I want to also add a short addendum before I tell this story and one that also links back to the last story I told in the second episode about the Vegas trip because I will take some accountability here for my toxic actions. I am not a fucking angel, clearly. And I realized that when I, as you're about to find out, got kicked out of the apartment that I had rented a week after living there because I had falsely claimed that I just wanted to study and spend time with my boyfriend who didn't really exist. I was lying. I was lying to my would-be roommate in hopes that he would let me rent the room out in his apartment and let me move in because it was a nice room and I wanted to live there. Now, just like in the Vegas story, I will take some accountability in the fact that I should not probably have gone to Vegas at all. I probably should not have entertained this man really in any capacity, never mind the capacity of entering into a lifelong commitment with somebody that you've known for a week. So I realized that I definitely have some toxic traits and patterns. And as much as this is not supposed to be a therapy session for me, I will take accountability for that. And I really just want to enter into this story acknowledging that I'm not completely delusional about my own faults and I'm not even going to add a but onto that as tempted as I am to do it and say but I like adventure and I'm open to experiences and sometimes it takes me to ugly places in life blah 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 whatever none of that matters I am taking accountability for my own bullshit and this is the story so like I was saying I had come to New York in June of 2020 with not a lot of money not a lot going on I had just been laid off from my job as a food reporter at the National Post, which was, or I guess still is, like a large Canadian newspaper because restaurants in Canada had pretty much all shut down. And I came to New York just sort of hoping to figure it out, to reconnect with some of the people that I had met the summer before when I had lived in Queens and just really get out of Toronto Kind of, once again, stepping into my destiny as the stereotypical wannabe New Yorker that feels like above everybody because they're renting a room in Manhattan and feels like their destiny is going to be fulfilled in New York. Mind you, I still didn't really know exactly what that destiny was. I had been working on some essays, but they were about dating. They were really was a mess. All of it was a mess. I would, at this point, pay money for people to not read all of the material that I had worked on in the beginning of the pandemic because I think it was terrible and, frankly, I have no desire to go back and even see if I'm wrong about that because it just, all of it's in my mind, feels too cringy to even revisit. So after getting to New York and getting kicked out of the room that I had rented for the summer on the pretense of my going out too much, which I was... I was living in the Lower East Side and I was going to Lost Lab, which was a bar or still is a bar. Also, God, I sound like I'm like a fucking dinosaur. Still is a bar in the Lower East Side that my friends owned. I was there. I mean, to be honest, pretty much every night 
last lap is on Orchard, and I lived on, oh my god, what is the street? I lived on Ludlow Street. Well, I don't know if you can say lived, because I was only there for a week, but maybe it was more like two weeks, now that I'm thinking about it. But anyways, in that time, I was going out a lot. It's also this kind of sliver of New York during that first break of the pandemic in the beginning of summer of 2020. I don't know if you remember, but everything started to reopen up again for the first time where the Lower East Side felt like some kind of Mardi Gras day party. It was unlike anything I'd ever really seen before and unlike anything I've definitely ever seen in New York where all of the bars had opened up outside, but because the streets on the Lower East Side are really small and narrow, there wasn't really any space for cars or anything like that. So a lot of the main streets like Orchard and Ludlow had been sectioned off and closed off just to let the restaurants use the space to put out tables and whatever. And so what ended up happening was like all of the tables and the people just kind of spilled over into each other and everyone. And if you've spent any time in New York, especially in the Lower East Side, you already know that a lot of the people that hang out there all somehow know each other, whether it's because they own a bar or a shop or live down there or skateboard, or are just a degenerate like me and like hanging out there because they like the vibe. Somehow, everyone is already friends. So you have this community that already exists and already parties together. And then add to that all of the other New Yorkers and visitors that were just anxious to go out because no one had been out in months since we had all been living in this like collective COVID hangover. And what you got was this kind of amazing pseudo end of the world party that pretty much went on every day. It went on for days. And so I got deposited back into New York right into the thick of this. And I remember the first night that I was there, I just thought to myself, like, this is so fucking amazing. I literally never want to leave, especially after being at home alone for three months. I had been literally Lysoling my groceries for the last three months. And in those moments of being back in New York City, I just sort of threw away my fear and paranoia about catching COVID. And I just really felt like, fuck it. If we die, we die. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I know that's really insensitive. I'm sorry. I mean, to be honest, I can't really justify my choices and how I was feeling then but I really just felt like I needed to live my life and so that's what I decided to do so some nights I would have friends over back at my apartment that was only really a couple blocks away from all of this and by my apartment I mean I was really just smuggling people into my room so that none of the other roommates could see or hear what was going on and there were three other people that I lived with. There was this one girl and her boyfriend who shared a room together. And then there was another guy who had been there for 10 years renting the rooms out to various people and whose name was actually on the lease. So he was kind of like the big Maharaj of the whole apartment situation. And it was actually a really big apartment space, and my room was huge, so I felt like it was pretty easy to get people in without disturbing anyone's peace. But what I also didn't realize until I moved in there and got to know my roommates better was that they were all the sort of 
COVID liberal Twitter people, my nightmare, um, who almost, I feel like were worried about COVID and scared of the virus to prove some kind of point about like their moral high ground or I, you know, those people, we all know, we all know those people, let's be honest. They like wear two masks just to walk down the street alone and one of the guys that I lived with would get tested every week and he got mad at me that I didn't want to do that. And so not only do I move in and I'm going out every night, but I was just instantly out of place among these people. There's really no other way to put it. So a week or two after I moved in, I had a few people over and the main guy whose name was on the lease banged on my door. He was super mad. I mean, I guess I understand, but he told me to get out, pretty much kicked me out, didn't even refund all of the money I had paid for rent, which sucked. And the next morning, I was back on the streets, back to the streets. And the first thing I did, because I didn't really know what to do and I didn't want to travel too far, and I also had nowhere to go, was I booked this cheap room on Airbnb in Little Italy. And if you know New York, you know Little Italy is walking distance from the Lower East Side. So I walked myself with my bags from Ludlow to Mulberry Street in Little Italy, walked up to the seventh floor, walk up where the apartment was, met my new temporary Airbnb roommate who turned out to be this lovely Italian girl who showed me my room which was, and I'm not exaggerating, pretty much the size of the closet that I am currently sitting in. There was not much of a difference in terms of like square footage. You could, and this was all that was in the room, there was, you could fit a single bed and a small bedside table and that was it. So after I shoved my bags into the space, I just sort of collapsed on the bed and started thinking like, what the fuck am I going to do? How am I going to find another apartment? How long can I even realistically afford to stay at this Airbnb? And just where the where do we go from here? What are we doing? So in a dark moment, I started texting a friend, as you do. And I was talking to this girl who was one of my closest friends at the time. And someone who I really still consider a close friend, even though we don't talk as much lately, because, I mean, that's just how it goes sometimes. She's been really busy running New York Fashion Week and the Met Gala and running her own company and all of this stuff. And she's really just like a boss on every level. So we were talking and I was explaining my situation and she asked me, point blank, why don't you just join seeking arrangements? And like I said before, this woman runs her own business, is very successful, is really not someone I think thinks of herself as a sugar baby. And she's not someone that anyone else would think of as a sugar baby because she's just not the type of woman who walks around looking for or expecting handouts from the world. So when I heard those words come out of her mouth, I was like very, very surprised. And she ended up explaining to me that she had met someone on the site who was great. He was a psychiatrist who lived on the Upper East Side. They had great conversation. 
she almost felt like he was a mentor to her, but not in like a creepy or condescending way, just in a way of having, I guess, a fulfilling relationship. I don't even know if that's a good way to describe it, but she was happy with the people that she had met on the site, or at least some of them. And we didn't get into the topic of whether or not he was giving her any sort of money or anything like that, because frankly, she's really not the type of person who needs any help in that department. But just her experience and the experience she described to me, it made me feel like I wouldn't necessarily have to feel bad about using a site like Seeking Arrangements. And that even if I didn't get rich off of it, at least it might be a better and more productive use of my time than some of the other dating apps like Bumble or Raya that I had used before and just sworn off because I felt like, I mean, if you've been on any dating app, you already know it's pretty much a huge waste of time and just a struggle, a constant struggle. And eventually most sane people, and I'm not even really sane, but most people quit them. And so even though I had never thought of myself as a sugar baby, the fact that there were women like her on it made me think like, all right, fuck it. Let me make a profile and see what this is about. So that night, that very same night, I ended up matching with someone who would go on to be one of my most interesting and really best and worst seeking arrangement experiences ever. And actually, before I get into this story, let me also say that while I'm not like my friend, the girl who put me on to Seeking Arrangements, in the sense that I'm not nearly as career-driven or alpha female or girl boss, slay queen energy as she is, at the time I was 28, and I think when I was younger, I did have more of that energy, and while I was then still actively pursuing a career in the music industry as an A&R or a music executive or whatever, I had also spent all of my 20s pretty much working constantly, like I've spoken about before. And I worked a lot. Like I had been a writer, a food critic, a judge on fucking Iron Chef. I used to host morning television segments. I worked different retail jobs at American Apparel, Recipes, and Aritzia. You know, I had internships at magazines across the country. I traveled the world writing for Vogue and all these other fancy publications. And, you know, I arguably reached a pretty high level of success at a young age. Like I was a magazine editor. I could keep going. Really, that doesn't even matter. But by the time I turned 28, I had also realized that most of the point of life doesn't necessarily come from working 50 or 60 hours a week or publishing some big story in a magazine or being on national television or, or working for some major corporate media publication that sounds fancy but pays you shitty and whose values you pretty much fundamentally disagree with at your core not to sound like some holier-than-thou person, but just that it doesn't really fulfill you at the end of the day the way that you hope it would. And so by that summer, I started to get this, like, sneaking, itchy rash feeling that most adults who have spent 10 years in the workforce like I had then at that point already know, 
which is that like spending your life constantly trying to climb some corporate ladder or sacrifice everything for the benefit of your quote unquote career is just not everything that it's made to seem like it is. It's not at all. Never mind the fact that with most of the jobs I worked, I barely made enough to afford my own apartment in Toronto. Never mind, like, make enough to make bigger financial contributions to my life and my family's life, like buying a house or helping my mom with bills in Poland. And maybe you could say that that's my own fault for not being more of a shrewd and savvy business person. And that might be some part of it, but I think it's also the fault of just where we're at as like a collective whole consciousness where we really continue to glamorize, you know, hustle culture and working and being an entrepreneur and all of that without also acknowledging that most people who are hustling or working constantly or launching their own business as entrepreneurs or pursuing their dreams are unfortunately also struggling financially. And if they're not struggling anymore, there was a time when they were struggling. Or at least they were or still are in a lot of debt from their own businesses and the costs that come with building something from the ground up. Like everyone says, it costs money to make money. But what they forget to say, like, it costs money and sometimes you don't make money. Sometimes you don't make as much money as you thought you would. That's just the fact of fucking life. So not looking for a handout, but also really being overworking my ass off to barely make $2,000 a month. I decided to join Seeking Arrangements. And that first night, I will never forget, I matched with this guy whose profile said his net worth was $100 million because, by the way, on Seeking Arrangements... They make all of the men list their net worth, which I know is like an extremely perverted thing to make people do, but what else can you expect? So he had listed that that was his net worth and we matched and almost instantly he messaged me inviting me to come over that night to his penthouse in Soho, which conveniently was like right next to me because like I said, I was in Little Italy. So I went to his place that night, which turned out to actually be the whole building that he owned. Casual. And for the sake of this story, I'm going to just call him M because I don't want him to be exposed in any way or anything like that. It might sound weird, but I do still have a lot of respect and appreciation for this man, if only because knowing him really ended up putting a lot of things into perspective for me personally. And he did end up introducing me to a handful of people that I am still friends with and that I still appreciate being in my life. But that's really besides the point. The point is I get to M's building that night. And when I get there, I learn that the elevator is broken and I have to walk all the way up to the top floor penthouse thing, rich people problems. When I finally get there, I'm out of breath. I find him, like, standing in the middle of this big-ass loft surrounded by these barking dogs, which I later found out uh, he had found on the streets of Italy and brought back to America. I don't know how he got the fucking dogs back here. I don't know. But they're running around barking. He's standing there barefoot with a big-ass bottle of vodka in his hand that he's drinking straight from. 
all of the walls behind him are covered in this amazing art, these big canvases. There's a ton of empty liquor bottles and glasses everywhere on this giant marble kitchen countertop behind him. And behind that, there's a bunch of these, like, models that look like they're from not here. I don't... They look like they're Russian or some kind of exotic models that are all smoking and drinking on his patio that's overlooking the city. And even though he's very friendly and welcoming and acting like all of this is perfectly normal... I just know instantly that I've walked into one of those absurd, eclectic, crazy rich people situations that are just so removed from regular life that they almost don't make sense in any other context except when you're there and when you're drunk off of his vodka and you're in that environment with the Russian models and the whoever else is important of New York City and you're all doing cocaine. Just kidding. I was not doing cocaine, but a lot of other people were. And you're just in this deluded, excited headspace. It's That's really the only way I can explain it. I mean, it just feels like this vacuum of non-reality that these people exist in. So even though I do feel pretty out of place, I'm still excited to be there. It's something new. I'm happy to be there. And within a few hours, thankfully, I guess M take, takes a liking to me. I find out also that most of the women who were there that night either live at the house or are planning to move in. And that he pretty much lets girls live there and stay there as they need. And that if I need to move in or anything like that, then I'm welcome to do that. That there's a room for me if I want it. So obviously the invitation to live in an amazing Soho loft for free is incredible. But it also feels like there's this instant red flag because I don't know what his relationship is to these other women. I just met him and I just get this vibe that there's really nothing free ever in this life. And moving in with a guy, even if he allegedly is worth $100 million and there's other women around, is definitely a situation where he still expects something from you. And that's something will probably not be money, but it'll be something else. And yeah, you can put those two things together. But But even though I recognize all of this, I'm, to be honest, still pretty like smitten with him and the promise of the whole situation. And I want to at least see how far I can take it before something bad happens or before he expects something. I don't want to write it all off. Like, it's still an exciting environment, and it still feels like good things could happen as well. But because it's also a lot, and I'm not ready to sleep over there that night, I go back to my Airbnb, and the next morning he texts me asking if I want to get lunch. And I'm still kind of giddy from the night before, so of course I say yes. I go back to meet him at his place the next day at noon, once I get there, I find that he is already drunk. He's once again not wearing shoes and just looks generally kind of unwell and disheveled and not the cleanest. And while all of these things are definitely red flags, I also know how much money he's worth and I'm still kind of ready to ignore them in my little depraved mindset of thinking like, okay, well, if he wants to take me for lunch, maybe I can get more out of him. Maybe since we're already having lunch in Soho, he'll want to take me shopping or something like that. I mean, I don't know. How hard could it be? I'll just suggest that I need something and then hopefully he takes the hit and runs with it. 
And my friend had actually put me onto a tip when it came to getting things from Sugar Daddies. And the tip involved, I'll never forget, because it's worked well for me, honestly, in the past after this point. But And the tip involves complaining about a situation in your life, suggesting a solution, and then waiting for them to step up and offer to help. And like I said, this has worked for me in the past, and it's a pretty good tip to getting a man to take care of you if anyone is taking notes. And there are ways to use this to actually be productive about your wants and needs. Like you could say something when I should have said something in this moment, like, wow, I really wish I had my own apartment. That is not your house. Or I wish I had more money to invest in the stock market or crypto or something like that. But I, and especially back then, never thought about these relationships as long-term investments. I I just wanted the designer shit, the fancy shit, and I wanted it fast. And so what I really wanted at the time, and what I needed to some degree, was a pair of summer sandals. Summer had just started. I didn't bring anything with me. But I didn't want anything that was like $50 or just some regular shit. Because I was in New York, and I wanted to flex on everyone that I knew or didn't know. I wanted to get my sandals from Dior or Chanel or Louis Vuitton or whatever. And you already know, I could not afford any of these things. And so before I had lunch with Em, I thought, let me just complain a little about the fact that I don't have any sandals, plant the seed for what I want, and hope he steps up to the plate. And thankfully, like magic, he did. And he said, let's go shopping. Let's go to Soho. So before lunch, we headed to all those like fancy beige pillar line streets in Soho with Dior and Chanel and Fendi. I forget the names because I don't know. I haven't been in New York in a while, but I should point out that he still looked homeless. And while we were crossing the street to go to Louis Vuitton, I kid you not, I cannot make this shit up. Someone literally stopped him on the street and tried to give him money. They tried to give him like $3. And I'm just thinking like, out of all the fucking sugar daddies in New York, how did I wind up with the one that looks homeless? Like, how God? Why me? Why? But anyway, we made it to Louis Vuitton, or I should say I made it to Louis Vuitton because he didn't feel like going inside. So I went and tried on a pair of sandals, found something that I liked, went back outside to find him sitting on the steps or the stairs in front of Louis Vuitton, smoking a cigarette, and told him about what I had found and asked if he could go in and pay for them. And instantly he just started making a fuss about why don't we just go get a pair of Birkenstocks or something regular and why am I being difficult and this and that. And I just knew that this was not going to be as easy as my friend or girls and sugar babies on TikTok had made it seem. And I'm also starting to get embarrassed because there's other people standing outside of the store waiting to get in that clearly know what's going on because it's obvious. Like, he's much older than me. I'm asking him to buy me a pair of expensive shoes. He's saying no. He looks like he hasn't showered in weeks. I look broke, but, like, I'm trying to look rich, which is even worse. 
All of it is embarrassing. So I just suggest that we leave and we get out of there. And thankfully, we start walking down the street. And as we're walking, he suggests that we go to another boutique. And I mean, I'm game. And when we get inside, the sales associate gives us, you know, like that standard New York once over where they survey you and they kind of decide how much money you're worth or how much money you're not worth and how much you might be willing to spend in their store or might be willing to spend that day. But despite everything, he's still like very nice to us, even though we're clearly very out of place and we just look odd and I know we look odd. Which actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is one of the ways that they train you to deal with unruly customers or people you suspect of being thieves when you work in retail. What you're supposed to do is pay a lot of attention to these customers and ask them a lot of questions to actually make them uncomfortable so that they leave on their own accord. So this sales associate, I guess, got the memo and he's asking us a ton of questions and I'm busy answering them. And meanwhile, M decides that he's bored and that he'll meet me outside. So after I'm done kind of window shopping and answering this man's questions, I get out of there. I go meet him outside. And as soon as he sees me, all he says, all M says is run. And he starts running. And I'm just like, what the fuck do you mean run? But he's already halfway down the street in his like barefoot situation So I'm running behind him, not knowing what the fuck is going on. Eventually, we turn the corner. He's out of breath. I'm out of breath. And he pulls a pair of white Celine sunglasses out of his pocket that I guess he stole from the shop. And he just looks at me and gives them to me and says, like, I'm not wasting my money on any of this designer bullshit, but these are for you. And while I know there is maybe nothing on this earth that is more spiritually bankrupt than taking an old man who you don't really know or don't really care about shopping for designer footwear in Soho. There's also something insane about the fact that the whole time he was doing this, he was also not really wearing any shoes of his own. I mean, like, I don't know, what a weird, beautiful metaphor for the disasters that are sugar baby, sugar daddy relationships. But aside from all of that, there was still something that felt like very real and genuine and sweet in that moment when he handed me those sunglasses. And maybe it was just like the thrill of hanging out with the klepto. Who am I to say? But I grabbed his hand. I put them on my nose. We kept walking. We ended up getting a drink at Jack's Wife Frida and we got some fries And I just, I remember feeling very grateful. At the time, I was grateful for the sunglasses, but looking back in hindsight, what I'm most grateful for is the fact that it was an exciting thing that happened. He was a memorable person that not only ended up connecting me to people, like I said, who I still have relationships with and I still value, But at least he also didn't bend to this idea of what a sugar daddy is supposed to be or what I wanted or anything like that. I mean, he barely even wore shoes, so he really wasn't trying to bend any societal norms. But looking back on it now, I appreciate that. And I'll get into why a little bit more later. And even though as time passed, 
and I didn't end up moving in because one of the Russian girls took my room and eventually we sort of fell out of touch as you do as my first foray into seeking arrangements life I still think it was really great and I still have the sunglasses to this day and so while me and that man did not end up working out in the long or short term He did end up introducing me to a man who went on to become my landlord in New York. And I also ended up meeting up a guy who was kind of like this South African prince character that I ended up dating that summer. But while I was grateful for the things that I had gained from M, like an apartment and someone that I actually liked, and I really was grateful, there was still something in me that wanted the fucking Chanel sandals and wanted the designer and wanted to live that lifestyle with my designer shoes on the Lamborghini dashboard with my nice watch with all of these things that I had seen that I had craved for whatever reason that's what I wanted so I went on more secret sugar daddy seeking arrangement dates now I definitely did meet a few weirdos. There was this one CEO who was really into BDSM who, like, God, I don't even want to describe this. I actually still feel physically ill from thinking about it because I did it once and I had to leave in the middle of the night because I just felt so disgusting and it not to shame anyone that's into this, but I just, it was not for me and I felt so used but he would always want me to wear this like collar that was attached to this leash that he would hold while we we were sleeping like I was his dog in bed with him it was not my thing at all the one night that I agreed to do it I ended up leaving at three in the morning or I don't know in the middle of the night and walking home because I just had to I, I felt like I was suffocating and I just felt like I had to get out of there there was also this tech executive who worked for one of the big tech companies based in New York who wired me $2,000 to come to his house to hang out with him after he had binged on coke all weekend and he sent the money before I even got there so that I knew he wasn't bullshitting and when I got to his house all of the windows were boarded up and I thought he might have been lying completely about what he did and who he was But after Googling, I realized, no, he actually is one of the big executives at a big tech company. And he just likes to keep his windows completely closed and do a lot of cocaine. Fair enough. To be completely honest, more often than the weird experiences or the exciting experiences, I found that Seeking Arrangements, or SA as some people call it, was mostly filled with the sort of gray nothing dates that come from... I think the transactional nature of the exchange, the exchanges that happen on SA, when you think about the fact that neither party involved in a sugar daddy, sugar baby date usually really likes each other that much, and unlike a strip club or some other type of party setting, you don't really have any fancy lighting or music or fun party atmosphere to cover up your lack of chemistry instead more often than not you end up sitting across from each other over some overpriced plate of pasta that you probably feel too self-conscious to eat because it's gonna get in your teeth 
and all over your nice outfit. And what you realize when you're sitting across the table from a man that you otherwise have no business speaking to is that what Seeking Arrangements is, is really a massive, uncontrolled social experiment between economic classes. Because when you take people from otherwise extremely divided social classes, and let's be honest, we are still extremely divided when it comes to social class in the world, but especially in America, and you make them sit down for lunch together at Cipriani or Nobu or whatever other sugar daddy restaurant is popular in Manhattan or wherever right now, some weird shit might happen if you have one too many glasses of Pinot Grigio or one too many martinis. But more often than not, you're probably not even going to have that much to talk about. Yes, you can do the old trick of asking the man all about himself, but he's probably equally embarrassed of his situation and doesn't even really want you to know everything about him, just like you don't want him to know everything about you. That being said, I think that If you're the type of person like I am that's always carried myself like I'm richer than I really am and that refuses to bend to any sort of social or political class or at least refuses to bend to the social or political class that you were born into, then a platform like Seeking Arrangements can be really promising. Because I mean, looking for a man to take care of you and spoil you and buy you Birkins and whatever, like Jada or Ari or whoever, this idea has been the nerve center of Instagram and the shade room and social media for a long time. So when people say that things like seeking arrangements or stripping is a gateway to more serious things like escorting or prostitution or just whoredom in general, no, I don't think that's true. I think existing in 2021 is the gateway to whoredom. If we are to define whoredom as entertaining men or using your body to gain some kind of financial capital... You cannot exist in the world today without being bombarded by images of women being taken care of by men. And that is not a bad thing. But if you are constantly seeing these images, you're eventually going to go out and say, all right, how can I get a piece of this for myself? How can I be one of these girls that's always on vacation and always has a new Chanel bag, even though she doesn't have a job? And if we're being honest, most of us deep down still think that we are just one hair or lash or nose job or BBL appointment away from, you know, begging that guy that's going to take us out of wherever and move us into his mansion in Malibu and take care of us forever. But there's also a bigger subsect of women. And this is where I think I fit in, who wrestle with that aspiration and versus the goal of achieving something on your own terms. And while one is really not better than the other, I think that half-heartedly looking for a sugar daddy or joking that you're looking for a sugar daddy with your friends is its own type of social contagion. Because honestly, when it comes to all of the jobs that I've worked, from stripping to being a food critic to writing about music to being a judge on fucking Iron Chef, to hosting TV segments, to working in retail, to being a nanny, etc. Truly, 
entertaining sugar daddies is I think the most mentally and emotionally taxing role I have ever had. Because at least with stripping, once you leave the club, you clock out. When you're fake dating someone like you are with a sugar daddy, it's like being constantly on call for a job that you really want no parts of and whose salary is usually much less defined and much less concrete than even something like stripping. Never mind a real job at a real company or a job that you make yourself. When it comes to working in any capacity, you have to be honest with yourself and know your limitations. In mind is that I do not want to ever be a sugared baby ever again. 